we are the people, right? We don't need a college education, right? Or need to be an expert or licensed in anything, absolutely anything, to be able to tell you what my people need. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week we're talking with Janelle Beauvais and Aida Cuadrado Bozzo from the Women's Fellowship at Community Change. The Women's Fellowship exists to hone the organizing skills of formerly incarcerated women of color or those otherwise directly impacted by incarceration in the criminal justice system. Aida and Janelle are going to talk about the trauma of incarceration, the resilience of women of color, the importance of frontline leadership on these issues, and the community's role in ritualizing return. This is one of my favorite stories, hearing Janelle talk about the experience of being incarcerated and then coming back to her community. And so I'm so excited for you to hear that amazing story. Quick announcement before we dive in. The Healing Justice podcast team is growing. We are hiring for two new roles, a digital organizer and a podcast producer. And so if you're interested or if you know people who may be qualified, we're hoping to get uh, enough qualified applications in by June 30th, 2019, and we'll consider them on a rolling basis. So please go to healingjustice.org work if you want to join our small and growing team and really help co-form and co-shape what this community is becoming. So a word about Janelle and Aida. Janelle Beauvais says that she is our indigenous sister, a Mohawk woman, a witness of imprisonment, an adversity survivor, spirit lover, and is working to end violence and live for the next generation. She's a descendant of the women of the Wolf Clan lineage and is rooted in the community of Akwesasne, which is part of a Mohawk reservation uh, on the U.S.-Canadian border in upstate New York. She also works at a local organization called Seven Dancers Coalition and is a fellow as part of the Women's Fellowship at Community Change. Our second guest is Aida Cuadrado Bozzo. And Aida works at Community Change, helps facilitate and helped co-found the Women's Fellowship. And you'll hear one of my favorite things is in this episode is that you'll hear the love and care that Aida and Janelle have for each other through this fellowship experience. And the way Aida describes herself is as an ordinary person that does extraordinary things. She is a transformative organizer and is committed to everyone being present in their own greatness, especially women of color. She's from Michigan by way of Patterson, New Jersey, by way of Puerto Rico. She's an organizer on the reinvestment team at Community Change and convenes the Women's Fellowship. So excited to dive into conversation with you and these incredible women. Let's listen. Hey, Janelle. Hey, Aida. Hey, Kate. Hey, Kate. Hi. I'm so happy you two are here. Y'all are amazing. We are all scattered across the state of New York, but we are on phones. We are on computers. We are on headphones. I'm feeling super honored to be with y'all. And uh, just want to start by diving into how much fun it was for me to meet Aida and then by extension to get to meet you, Janelle. 
Aida, we were introduced via email, and I want to say within like 12 to 24 hours, we were on the phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was hearing about actually how much of a relationship we already had that I didn't necessarily know about yet, <laughs> but we did through sharing this work. This is true. <laughs> you were my sister before you knew that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, will you tell a little bit about... Um, kind of what's been your relationship to the podcast and how really both of you have used some of these practices? Yeah, thanks, Kate. I am so, of course, I was going to respond to that email within like <laughs> 12 to 24 hours. It's Kate from Healing Justice and um, um, the Healing Justice Podcast. And I, um, I'm a, you know, a Healing Justice Podcast gave into my life at like a very needed time when I was like rethinking about what it means to be an organizer and, in 2018, 2019, and I am a big fan, right? So, of course, I fanned out a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I really appreciated the practices. It was like, you know, in my circles, it wasn't, there wasn't at that time a place where organizers were really, um, where I was really getting, you know, some really good healing practices or um, trying new things that worked for me. And I knew something was missing. Uh, so... And I knew that I wanted to do organizing a different way because the way that I was organizing, so deeply rooted in, you know, Solinsky style was not going to keep me around for longevity, right? And it also didn't allow for me to be fully aligned with my authentic self. And I came across the Healing Justice podcast. I think I listened to like almost all the practices in like two days. Oh my gosh. That's so not recommended. (laughs) (laughs) Don't try this at home. But it was just like, I just, (laughs) I was just like so hungry for it. Yeah. Hungry for the conversation, hungry for the practice. Mm. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I remember the very first one I heard was the conversation with you and Rosia on vomiting rage it was the first time that someone put right in front of me all of the things that I was dealing with, like the ego work that I had to do, how committed I was to the capitalist side of organizing, because that's the only way that success was measured, right? It was meeting the points, the outcomes, the hours I spent in the office. And it just truly like gave me so much to like just chew on and reflect on. But my first time using these practices was with a group of women in um, Haley Farms in Tennessee. And the very first one I used was just a regular somatic centering. After that centering, there was like this immediate response to it, right? This immediate response from the room, immediate response from the leaders that was like some of resistance, some of like, uh, what is this? Some of, you know, of curiosity. And then some were like, these are all my feelings and I want you all to know them. <laughs> and I was grateful for the somatics practice because it opened up for us a real conversation. Even though there was like this like big array, this huge array of like reactions. But I was grateful for it because it was the first time all of us were able to claim in the space the tension they had were just sitting in their own bodies because for so long, our bodies didn't belong to us, you know, which, you know, but for me brought up a lot of conversations with, you know, there's a lot of 
people who believe that you have to be certified or licensed to do healing work. And for me, it's about, you know what? Our ancestors have known how to do this work since creation. How to resettle, how to work through our own tensions, how to breathe, how to like reclaim our spaces. And um, like, I appreciated the ability to learn something, um, practice it, right? Because it is a practice it with others, right? And then be able to move into a conversation that was transformational for so many of us. And I'd love to bring Janelle into this conversation because just recently we were in um, Atlanta, Georgia together. Jacoby on the Healing Justice podcast leads this amazing practice of forgiveness meditation, right? And I was able to like introduce that in a, in a space where like we got to call ourselves into a little, you know, of uh, seeing each other in a space of human beingness, right? And um, Janelle was there. We were in Atlanta together. And, you know, she's uh, not only led her own healing practices, but, you know, was there for that moment where we were like, let's take a minute to breathe and meditate and allow ourselves to forgive those who have caused harm done to us because we have also caused harm done to others. Janelle, you on here, girl? I'm just totally on. Uh, going along on this adventure with you and and it was it was definitely with all that and everything you said and then some and so I'm just sitting here like whoa I just realized that all of Aida's wonderful practices and how she's handled us is has largely been through uh you know the healing just podcast so that's really great so I'm sitting here thinking like where am I going to start investing more time <laughs> so listening to these these really great things that people are sharing because you know, personally, I, I've I've never really had a lot of exposure, you know, to what I'm hearing or coming out of this podcast. So that's really exciting. And so, yeah, you know, the, all all the, all of the spaces where you're able to create intimacy, right? So I'm like sitting here thinking about like validating uh, not just people's bodies, but also their energy bodies, their emotional bodies their mental bodies, like it, very rarely do we interact in that way or, or are they addressed or they seen or brought to the surface. And so I was just thinking about in Haley Farms, how much came to the surface, right? Everything came up, like everyone was crying, everyone was laughing and that ceremony of healing right, where we can all, like, venture into those painful places and everybody's making sure that you don't feel alone in that in their own way and how so many other times we feel helpless when someone's going through something emotionally. People don't know how to respond. They don't know how to uh, attach themselves. They're unattached and and how we've kind of just forgotten those skills. And I, I completely agree with, you know, everything that you said in the sense of it's it's not even that, it's not a certification, it's, it's an inheritance. Every person that has uh, been brought into this realm of living inherited their senses, their emotions, all of that pieces and, and how we've just over time been, because that's real liberation to know yourself and other people in that way has a lot of power. It's all the power, really, you know, now being able to walk into a conversation or a space 
and and appreciate that and being able to respond in the way that I want to. It's like a maturity. It's it's growth. It's uh, an evolution. The value system inside us changes and things also start to change. I want to ask you, Janelle, like, it really strikes me what you're saying about the fact that people like people have every reason to not want to or to not have to do organizing work, do forgiveness work, do healing work. Like, and I know the the kind of structural formation that brought you two together is this women's fellowship at Community Change for formerly incarcerated women or women impacted by incarceration. I would love if you would just share a little bit about your story so our listeners can dive in with you and kind of understand where you're speaking from. I always start with a prayer. And a lot of times we'll find ourselves seeking something greater when we've lost all control of the circumstances around us. And I had arrived at this place of, you know, being a single mother. I was, you know, um, I was in active uh, alcoholism, I would say. I was, I had just buried my mother and I found myself going to court for this charge and I, I uh, was ready to go to the, I went to trial, I brought things to trial because, you know, I knew my participation in this situation and I didn't take a plea deal and I didn't want to testify and I didn't want to go to prison for something that, you know, I knew uh, what really had happened and it wasn't, um, it wasn't what they were trying to portray how it happened. So anyways, I had said this prayer. I haven't really talked about this much, but the night before, uh, in our ways, one of our greatest tools, or I should say things that we use to, to make an offering, and it goes into our creation story, is tobacco. And so I grabbed this tobacco because in our story, it came from uh, a woman who came from a, fell from a celestial place, from a celestial tree. And with that, she had in her hand the seeds of tobacco and um, strawberries. So anyways, I had, I had in this, the night before my sentencing, I had taken this tobacco and I knew I was a hot mess. And personally in my life, I was, you know, hurting. I was alone. I, I, I didn't have much. I was scared. I was angry. And I burnt this tobacco. And I asked the creator to allow me to accept whatever was going to come and that it was going to be for my greater good, that it wasn't going to be just what I wanted, but it was going to be for my greater good because I no control about what these people are going to decide about me. And I was, and that was, I think my first step in trying to let go. I went to court the next morning. I dropped my children off at my grandmother's house. And, you know, that jury would find me guilty on all three charges. And I would ultimately be sentenced to 12 and a half years in a maximum security prison. So it was instantly loss of everything. And trying to make sense of that prayer and that conversation and that commitment that I made with creation was was a, a hard thing as Aida would say to chew on, right? Like so that was like, what did I do? Like this was not what I wanted. Like this is like how did I end up here? And and that that's a lot of damage 
that I felt like I caused myself was questioning that prayer for so long. So in the meantime, I'm, you know, getting uh, transported. I'm having my last conversations with my one and uh, four and five-year-old. That's how old they were. And I was just adamant at trying to find a way to figure out how to fight this case, not having any money. All of those risks that I took would end up working in my favor, not knowing it then, but not pleading guilty to something that I didn't do worked in my favor. And as sad as that is, that usually is not the case. So it was due 28 to 24 years in prison. Um, or do a year if you testify and, you know, and I didn't, I didn't want to do either one. I shouldn't have had to do either one. So anyways, uh, everything about me was taken out of context at trial. And so it very much made me not trust the legal system. Um, there was no evidence. And so it was a very real thing that you can absolutely go to prison on a narrative that anybody can get up there and say, you know, Miss Bovee has no regard for human life. She has no, you know, respect toward the law. She's, you know, this menace to, you know, all of these things. And I'm sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? Like, I'm a single mother of three kids. I just buried my mother. I work. I'm part of the community. Anyways, yeah, I would find myself in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, which uh, I, I think you're not too far from, if you're in New York City right now, you know, Bedford Hills is just on the outskirts of the city. And so it's the only maximum security prison. Actually, if you're going to go to prison, a state prison, that's probably where you want to be because there's just more things to, to do with your time. County jail, you're sitting in a room for 23 hours out of the day with uh, a couple other women, you know, in that, in that unit. And so... Um, going to prison was actually, well, you could go to school, you had a job, you know, you, there was more ways to, to eat up that time. I made a promise, you know, to my children. And that promise uh, was to keep fighting until I could get out. And I didn't know that the promise that I would make then would literally change, would save my life because I, I got to prison you know, I, I figured out the environment. I found where I was going to be living. I got situated on one of the worst floors in the prison, from what I understood, and I got my own cell, uh, which is can be rare. You can either be put in a, a housing unit where there's 80 other women kind of like fighting over three toilets and two showers, and it's very chaotic. It's loud. And so a lot of actually what I talk about in prison was it, it was about trying to adjust, but uh, I couldn't actually deal with the loss in the beginning. I was just trying to survive the environment. Wow. I feel so curious about, like, what were some of the ways that you kept yourself spiritually and, and mental health-wise alive during that time? What were some of the practices that you did on the inside that, that kept you going so that when you came out, you were ready to go back to your community? So one of, one of the practices was reading. And so reading and taking in information was really important. And so I just kind of naturally uh, attracted myself to psychology books. And so I was reading like Floyd and Young and, you know, different 
of that nature and trying to understand. I was trying to strengthen the muscle of my mind because in there things were so chaotic. They were, they, you know, they were just, it was like screaming and yelling and like the clanking of things and, you know, and you're, and you're cold, you know, you're freezing. There's a bunch of other different elements that you're trying to adjust in. And so to me, being able to uh, conquer my thoughts having self-discipline because I was so consumed with grief. I was so consumed with loss that when things got quiet, all of that stuff started flooding in. And so in reading and trying to say, well, I could put myself in meditation, you know, I could focus on my energy centers is what really saved myself and my well-being. It got into deeper, like trying to manifest my my win, my appeal, you know, putting out into the energy through this little cell and this dirty window that, uh, you know, I could, I would talk to the moon, even though for a whole year I couldn't see it, you know, knowing that the stars were out there, you know, trying to connect with something outside of the prison because inside of it, it was so heavy. Um, so, so, so that practice, you know, those, there was a numerous ones, but, particularly meditation and, um, you know, understanding my body a little bit more. But it was also about getting up every morning and I would acknowledge the sun. I would acknowledge all of those things that kept their commitment to their role and responsibility to helping this world be what it was, you know, that every morning the sun shows up for us. And I remember there was a tree in the yard and I would, intentionally go out and touch that tree and ask that all of the things that you know I thought about and loved that the roots of that tree it would travel to my children and to the people that I miss and to my mother and really like trying to extend communication because I had very uh, very little of it so it was you used what you could under the circumstances that you had them and a, a lot of that was um Asking the the universe for things, uh, writing a letter, you know, a five year uh, letter asking the universe to give me a home, give me my children back, give us a trip to Disneyland, you know, give me a partner that was going to support me. And I remember um, wanting a sign, and I asked. Uh, I was in this. I was in this meditation, and I was like, within three days. I, I asked to see a dragonfly. And, you know, being in prison and not having a lot of access to being outside in the season, like, I don't even know why, but I asked to see a dragonfly as a as a sign that what I wanted was going to happen. And all of a sudden, I think on the third day, I get called down to the RMU, which is the nurse's kind of station, and I never go there, and they call me down and I'm sitting there waiting to see the nurse and she comes in and wouldn't you know, she had dragonflies on her, on her pants. And I remember sitting there thinking like how powerful this was if we simply knew how to ask the universe for things and wait and have enough patience to, for the response. And then there's the women, right? So there's, there's wells of deep love knowledge and creativity within the walls of those prisons and those women are doing life 
those women are, you know, not getting their appeals won and they're struggling every day to also figure out the purpose behind this, this imprisonment. But, you know, they, they were like phenomenal in truth and atonement and, and forgiveness and on a perspective that you would not have to get out of someone that hasn't been through uh, as much adversity. And my God, I had so much, uh, respect for them. I privileged to be in their their presence, and and one of those women that I would meet early on would be Donna Hilton, and Donna Hilton served 27 years, uh, got out, and and was you know inevitably build relations with uh, Aida, and and that told me and me and Aida through the through the support of uh, Donna Hilton, me and Aida would meet up and form also another meaningful relationship around this work and women. Thank you, Janelle. Just, uh, you know, God, I just want to take a minute and uh, just honor you because kind of like Kate's question was like, why would you even forgive? Why, like, why would you do that? And, um, and for me, it's, I've been just so present to your like wonderful grace, right? And how like you are always a stand for, women standing in their dignity and I remember I remember uh you talking about Standing Rock and I remember just you sharing a story of your experience there but then what I was like mostly connected to was like um how and no matter what space you are you are like who you are there's like demand for like uh others to treat you with dignity comes from your respect of others. And I just, I always so appreciate how in this world that seeks to demonize and and dehumanize us and for many of us criminalizes us and and is usually the reason why many of us end up um, impacted by the criminal justice system. Here you are standing with like in forgiveness and creating space for redemption and saying it out loud, right? And I just, uh, yeah, forever thankful for to Donna Hilton for introducing us because, um, you know, that's why it was so clear to me, right, that we had this fellowship needed uh, to happen. And it was because of her support and many women like, you know, Charlene Sinclair and Safara Waller Muhammad, Nijmita Zarenko, I mean, Cheryl Wilkins, all were, you know, and Donna Hilton and you were like, our stories, our destinies were so different, but we all experience what it means to be criminalized because of poverty. We all experience what it means to be dehumanized because of the color of our skin and where we come from and what's our zip code um, and what kind of uh, you know privileges we have. And in that process, it was also about like, how do we restore that, right? How do we restore that in not only ourselves, right, that we, are women who deserve our dignity, that we can reclaim who we are in this space, in this world that seeks to destroy us in multiple ways. And then um, how do we do that with 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 other women? You know, part of the healing practices for the fellowship was very much created out of, you know, Haley Farms and being in relationship with you, right? About how are we cleansing each other? Right. How are we cleansing this guilt and this anger 
and this pain um, and this this history that was enforced on us, right? Um, uh, and how do we have create the space for us to be vulnerable, right? Where we get to talk about what really matters to us and the impacts of that incarceration and, and crim- the criminalization of women of color has on our families. So, you know, I'm always, I always tell people like, yo, you know, Janelle, the women in this fellowship are the experts. All I know is how to organize. I'm a woman of color who've experienced criminalization through just growing up in poverty, right? For me, it's like my, my contribution to this movement, to this work is just the fact that I'm an organizer and that like my process very much aligned with like um, restoring and healing my community, right? And um, kind of reclaiming that for each other and um, have just been in, just an honor to be in a work with you and the other 25 wonderful women from Haley Farms to think about how do we rethink organizing in a way that not only restores us, but transforms us, right? Like um, we keep wanting to organize for liberation, but are so deeply, so much in pain um, and have not had the opportunity to work through our traumas and reclaim and cleanse all of that that um, has come with us through on our journey that we have collected on this journey, just as women, just as women of color, women who have been impacted by the criminal justice system or uh, white supremacy in general. How do we transform ourselves and our communities and movement so that it's, it doesn't other and leave people behind mm. and just cre- create a world that is just as painful, but just colorful. Right. Mm. Uh, mm. So um, all of that, but just, just, just present to your amazingness, Janelle. Oh, thank you. <laughs> hey everybody. This is Kate. I just wanted to drop in to make a quick uh, interlude to talk to you about some of the ways that our community is coming together and sharing creativity and getting to know each other more in addition to listening to the podcast. So one of the really exciting things we have going on right now is that we are collectively reading Adrian Marie Brown and contributors book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. It's put out by AK Press and AK Press has super generously partnered with us to host book club and given us a discount code for 15% off to buy uh, Pleasure Activism and a whole realm of other incredible important movement reads um, from akpress.org the 15% off code is the word podcast and for members of our book club you actually get a 30% off code to AK Press. you can find out more about book club by going to patreon.com slash healing justice but what we're going to do today is actually hear from one of our book club members and friends of the podcast David J. So David reached out to me um, to share uh, something that he's been working on creatively, a poem that he wrote um, in response to the experience of reading and sitting with pleasure activism. And so to tell you a little bit about David, um, he was actually, I met David the first, literally the first day that I moved to New York <laughs> um, at, uh, at an event called The Feast. Um, 
but that was put on by Jerry Chow. And um, David has been a really steady um, friend, and I feel really grateful that he's part of the podcast community. He's also newly a parent in queer family with great joy, um, and we're so excited for him and his family and that experience. And as I have worked through reading pleasure activism, I've often thought of David because David is also one of the co-founders of the biggest online space for asexual folks, the ace community. And I've been curious as I read pleasure activism and think about so many of the reclaims that are happening in this book that are also so framed sexually. And so obviously pleasure is something that dramatically includes all people. And so I've been curious about how it feels for the asexual folks in our community to be reading this book. And I just felt really delighted when David reached out to me and shared this amazing poem. Um, I hope that in sharing it, we can mirror back to David and all the other asexual folks in our community that we see you and we love you and we validate and include and learn from your pleasure life all the time. So here's the poem that popped into my inbox, and here's David. Hi, I'm David, a huge fan of the podcast and of Adrian Rue Brown's work, so I'm thrilled that this book club is happening. I'm a white cis man who's also asexual, so I have my own long and complicated history with pleasure. And the book brought up a lot for me on what it means to explore pleasure, especially outside of sexual scripts. It inspired me to write a poem, which Kate asked me to share with you all. Uh, it's inspired by the poem on page 113 and is kind of my advice about pleasure to my anger self. When you first love, you will not have words. There have not been words written for your love. That does not mean that it's impossible and visible. Make a word. You come from a lineage of script breakers and script writers. When the smooth stories of love are broken, notice what grows in the cracks. Name it. Learn to take the hand of someone who matters to you and point to it in gratitude. You will feel loneliness like moonlight, constant even in the sun, waxing and waning. When it comes, take a large sheet of paper and draw a map. How you find love, where you find love, with whom you find love. Leave a large place at the center for love with yourself, for how you find time with yourself. Do not trust stories which define love and the experiences of bodies that are not yours, in scripts that are not yours. Most love shows up as some movement of the body. Let your body move and be moved. Remember that orgasm is a small garden on a continent of possibility. Consent is a tool of liberation, of exploration, not of limitation. Learn it. Learn to teach it in movement. You probably have a great deal to teach the world when it comes to love and bodies. Above all, remember this. You may have been told to wait for love, to fall into it. You may never fall in love. Grieve that. But know that you will know love, embodied, joyful, powerful beyond comprehension. Love is not the thing you fall into. Love is what you build. Thanks again to Kate and the team for all the work you do to put this podcast together and for inviting me to share. Thank you so much to David for sharing that powerful poem. 
If you are also reading pleasure activism and are inspired by it or are inspired by anything else on the podcast and want to share your thoughts, your creativity, find us on social media. We're at Healing Justice on Instagram, at HJ Podcast on Twitter, and Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook. We can't guarantee that we'll share everything that comes in, but maybe we can repost, maybe we can share on the podcast. We love to uplift the work and the reflection of our community's voices. And if you decide you want to join book clubs so that you can receive the facilitator guide to convene people locally who are reading pleasure activism and also join the webinar that we're having in early August with Adrian and Monique Tula and Amita Swadheen, we would love to have you there. You can find out more details at patreon.com slash book club and join at any level, $10 a month or above um, to be part of book club with us. Thank you for sharing, David. Back to Aida and Janelle. I love it. I love that you keep talking about transformation. Yeah, it strikes me so much just listening to both of you and feeling so appreciative. The way that you're talking about restoring and transforming, and I know, Janelle, I think actually for both of you that you have experiences of kind of like a coming back or a restoring. And um, I'd love to hear, Janelle, if we could sort of fast forward to the moment where you actually did come home and how community responded to that what re-entry was like, yeah, what that return transition was like. How how was that held? So I just want to say I I I was very much blessed with uh, the granting of my appeal. And so I it took a little over two years, but I had won and uh, I'd won my appeal and so the facility let me know that, you know, I would be released in a few weeks. So usually people that know they're coming to their end date, they go through like a, a transitional thing, right? To help them adjust to go back into society. So that kind of skipped all of me and I was instantly trying to think about, you know, how was I going to, who was I going to be back? Because it, part of what uh, being institutionalized is for you to forget that. So you're supposed to forget that you're Janelle, you're supposed to forget that you have value or that you have the right to make a decision, that you have choices, that you have consent, like, you know, your one one G O four three seven and you're and you live, you know, on unit two. And so um it's kind of just that thinking and mentality of control, power and control over you and so the, the facility is always it's built, the system is built for you to not feel empowered so that you don't resist the authority that's happening in the facility. And so anyway, so I was, I was trying to think about um, how was I going to react to all these people that I had carried this hurt and this pain from about, you know, being, going into prison and re- the relationships really. It's how was, you know, how was I going to be with my kids? Was I going to know how to be a mother was I still a mother like really trying to think about you know how was I gonna beep back into those uh natural roles and responsibilities that I had been plucked from you know coming back and coming out um there was lots of anxiety 
it was overwhelming to, you know, obviously see my children, to hold them, to be with my family members. And so one of my biggest things was not wanting to leave the house because if I left the house, anything could happen and I could go back to prison. And so it was just safer to stay in the room and not leave the house. And that's how uh, abuse and, uh, and oppression works, right? It's saying like, even, even, even though you're free now and you can walk down the road and you've dreamt and fantasized about these things, it, those things were unsafe. They were unsafe for me to do. So it took a little bit and a couple car rides and a little bit of nausea and some panic attacks. But after I would say about a few weeks, I got invited to a community event. And um, I was, there was, there was actually a men's event. And um, there was a few women there, so they had this side meeting that was happening. And so I went under this tent with these women. I'm very quiet, so there was uh, women in the community that had, you know, stature, and they were, you know, carrying all these big roles of leadership. And, you know, they were nurses. They were, you know, uh, clan mothers. they were police officers, they were social workers, they were, you know, and they were all very much passionate and, and articulate in what they were doing. And so as they started this circle and they started going around and introducing themselves, you know, I realized that the ball was rolling toward me and I, and I got nervous and I thought, oh, I'm not going to say anything. I have nothing to offer. I'm, I just got out of prison and I, and I don't have my kids and I don't have any money and I have... I have nothing to offer this circle. And then I I remember, okay, uh, listen, like, listen to yourself. And so I took a moment and I thought, I'm going to listen. And inside me was like, just talk. And I did. I sat there and I started talking about how I was just released from prison and that I was grieving the women. I was grieving the only relationships I knew for the past two years. And I, and I felt guilty. I felt bad that they were still in there and there was nothing I could do and I couldn't get them out. And they had 20 more years to do. And I left them. I left them in there. And you know, who was going to, you know, who was going to cheer them up and who was going to, you know, and, and I, and I cried, you know, I sat there and I cried and I felt so bad, helpless that, you know, they were going to have to enjoy that. And they were good, good women. I remember, uh, one of the women stood up and she had grabbed this bundle of sage and all, and all feather. And she had asked me to stand in the center of this circle and um, she had requested that everyone that under that tent, all the women, would extend a hand to me, and that they were to either, you know, put a hand on me or a hand on a woman that was had their hand on me. And she asked for um, a woman, an, an older woman, to, to share a song. And I didn't know it then, but it was a peyote song. And the moment she started to sing. I like felt like this whole vortex over me, around me, um, was happening. And, and the more she sang, and all of these women kind of like bowing their heads in thought and in intention and in sincerity, I had not been.
treated like this, I think, ever. And it was like going from, like, you know, thinking and believing that you're just a number or your property or you're an inmate, you know, um, and then going into this space where all these women were singing in prayers to me. I cried like it was nobody's business. And I like just allowed all of that because it was actually my first time that I could cry in prison. I couldn't really uh, allow that vulnerability in there either. And so crying and, and allowing that to happen. And all of those women came up to me one by one and they said, welcome home. You know, welcome home, welcome home. And they gave me a hug and they gave me their card and they, you know, they gave me their number and, and they just really extended themselves to me. And uh, I truly believe that type of influence that happened to me, you know, within the first two months of being home directly changed my thought process about being back in my community and how much I loved them. It was like, I loved you so much for showing up for me like that because I, I had never known that type of camaraderie or that type of uh, um, embrace. And, and now today I would, you know, I would work directly with every single one of those women, you know, in that circle and then some and, and be a part of community. I've witnessed your power with other women, Janelle. Um, you definitely are um, amazing at welcoming women and welcoming people back and allowing a space for them to reclaim it. I'm just so grateful, like, as I reflect on that, like how how these powerful women were able to see all that greatness in you uh, by just placing their hands on um, and taking the time to hear you because you have so much to give. Uh, and uh, I think that's like, um, you know, part of my organizing journey is very similar to that, not similar to your, like specifically to your story. It just, which speaks to the, um, but it speaks to the purpose of this work that we're doing that Janelle and community change. And it's like so many of us are doing, which is this process of, like reclaiming and restoring, but also uh, acknowledging the brilliance that we have around us that usually we don't, we don't take the time to do. And, you know, I came into organizing because of my many years of experience of just feeling, um, you know, like oppressed. It was, you know, I was, we were poor growing up. I was working in healthcare during the recession and I would see people come into the hospital and not feel like they were even human anymore. Like they deserved healthcare. That just blew my mind, right? That, that here's a human being who says, I can't, since I cannot afford it, I can't, since I cannot afford this, I do not deserve this. I came into organizing cause I was just like, well, that needs to change. But shortly after I realized that so much of it didn't feel right. It didn't feel right because I was being taught to like organize only with the best leaders. People had to give up who they were truly and authentically to show up how they were most palatable, right? People to share their stories and, and that would be the level of leadership that was invested in. 
And um, I really struggled with that. I struggled with how we were organizing communities to just dream for the lowest fruit, for just being happy for a short, small win. I also was witnessing the burnout of so many powerful women and men of color who were organizing and not dealing um, or had a space to like process a deep pain and trauma they were feeling for themselves and their communities and what they grew up in. And I'm just like the way we're organizing, the way I'm telling them that it's, you know, we have to do this. We have to work long hours. We have to, you know, fight, fight, fight and no space for joy and to heal and to reclaim who we are in the midst of this work that wearing a blazer and fancy shoes and speaking a certain way was the only way to win. Just really bothered me. It just didn't sit right. And close to burnout, I knew that something had to change for me in this process was about being really clear about um, who are the experts in the field? Who do we build with? Who has the right to say, all right. And we've professionalized organizing in a way where it's like, it has to be a certain way. And so I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful to dream about what restoring and transformational organizing look like and do it with the leadership of women who have been impacted by the criminal justice system. You know, for me growing up at, uh, with family members in and out of prison uh, was pretty normal. But like for most people, that's not normal at all. But, and, you know, and, and I, I realized that we who are criminalized and demonized, our, um, our normal lives um, have to be normalized for us to like really be able to live with it sometimes. I believe that that women who have been impacted by the criminal justice system are the vanguard to bring about a whole new world. They have forgiven, you know, they have um, brought healing back into our families. They're leading phenomenal work across the nation that should be funded, that should be respected, and that should be positioned um, nationally to dream big and they're doing it. And, um, you know, like, that's part of my process, right? Because I, w- I came back feeling extremely guilty about all the ways that I was like showing up so uh, rooted in white supremacy around what organizing should look like. This is part of my redemption process to wash away some of this guilt and to restore my communities and showing them that whoever they are, however they are, whatever they've experienced is the right way. And we are the people, right? We don't, we don't need a college education, right? Or need to be an expert or licensed in anything, absolutely anything to be able to tell you what my people need, period. Well, I want to thank you both so, so much. I know it feels like we just got started, which is how these episodes always go, I hate to tell you. Um, but just so much gratitude for what you've shared. Just really the tip of the iceberg and reflecting on the role of women who've been impacted by incarceration and really leading us to liberation. And I feel really excited, Janelle, about the practice that you're going to be offering us, uh, which we'll publish next week on the podcast, about the condolence ceremony, this thinking about how we welcome people back, whether it's after incarceration or any other ritual of welcoming people back into our communities, how meaningful that was for you and that you're going to give us some tips to think about being able to lead something like that for ourselves and think about our communities who might need a moment like that for us to surround them and bring them back in. And so just 
deep gratitude to you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the powerful work you're doing. And let's keep talking. Thank you, Kate. We're, I'm deeply grateful to you. Janelle, oh my God. Thank you, girl. Like, um, y'all ain't ready for Janelle's practice. Let's just be real about that. <laughs> you know, um, may this podcast be like blessed by the creator. And just want to thank you for your leadership in the movement around healing um, and reclaiming our personal ecology, Miss Kate Warning. You know, thank, I can't, you already know, like, I love you up every opportunity. I get, and this, this is no exception. So I just wanted you to know, like, I always appreciate you showing up and you always do, you know, so for being that ambassador, for being the pioneer, for being in the trenches, for doing all of that, like, I always see you, I always think about you. It's a real thing to give up personal time and space to try to think of a greater good. And you're absolutely right. You're the perfect example of someone who, you know, was able to overcome, you know, trauma and have the ability to imagine, to have a vision for for people and for their families and for their greater good. And I will always, always hold the biggest spot in my heart for you. So thank you so much, Aida, for, for doing all that and best of luck on the rest of your day. And, you know, I know, I know me and you are going to be talking sooner than later, so... Thank you, Janelle. Yep. I love you. Bye. Love you too, girl. Oh my gosh. We all love both of them, right? (laughs) Thank you so much, Aida and Janelle. Um, The practice that Janelle is going to be offering was already a little bit previewed here, but know that you can download the next episode to hear about the condolence ceremony and how to offer a ritual of return or re-inclusion in your own community. If you found this resource useful, please join us with your support on patreon.com slash healingjustice. Links are in the show notes to join our email list at healingjustice.org and find us on social media. So stay in touch. We share gorgeous stuff all the time and we love sharing your thoughts, the ways you're implementing this work in the world and your reflections on these topics. Remember that we're hiring through June 30th for our little small and mighty Healing Justice podcast team looking for a digital organizer and a podcast producer. You can find all the information about that at healingjustice.org slash work. And huge thank you to Rachel Ishikawa for gracefully, as always, content editing this episode and the mixing and production work of our volunteer sound engineer, Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you so much to each of you for your commitment to living fully and doing this work in a good, good way. We're with you and we'll hear you next week.